Well, thank you very much, everybody, for joining us this evening. My name is Astrida Namanis. I'm at the Gender Institute here at the LSC, and I'm very happy to be invited to chair this lecture called The Origins of Sex, A History of the First Sexual Revolution. Um, the Twitter hashtag, if you, in case you need to furiously uh, text your friends about what's going on, is found up there. So um, it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Farah Dabwewala, a fellow tutor and lecturer uh, in modern history at Exeter College at Oxford. Um, this is his book that he will be speaking about, The Origins of Sex. It will be available for purchase in the lobby after the talk. Um, Dr. Dabwewala will speak for about 45 minutes and after that we will have about an equal time for a Q&A. Um, so this talk also, I should let you know, is being recorded and we will hopefully have it up as a podcast shortly after. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Dabwewala to LSE and look forward to his talk. Thank you very much, Astrid, uh, and thank you all for coming. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I spent the past few weeks uh, endlessly uh, trying to summarize uh, my entire book in two sentences for busy journalists, uh, which is fun, but uh, I'm really looking forward to being able to talk at slightly greater length about it this evening, uh, and also to being able to uh, take your questions um, about the book and about what I've said. Um, so please do um, fire them at me uh, after I've finished. But I want to start uh, with a question from me to all of you in the audience. Um, so if the answer is yes, please put up your hand. And the question is simply this. Who here has ever had sex with someone w without being married to them? Good, thank you very much. Uh, I think that shows uh, two things. Um, it shows, first of all, that uh, quite a lot of people have. And secondly, what it showed most immediately was that was a slightly uncomfortable question. It's slightly uncomfortable because uh, it's a question about something that we think of as essentially private. And sexual privacy and sexual freedom and the right to do what we like in our own bedrooms is something that we take for granted. It's central to our culture in all sorts of ways. Everyone can see that in the modern world, Western attitudes to sex are distinctive. We think it wrong that in other cultures, in some other cultures, its discussion is censored or that people suffer for their sexual orientation that women are treated as second-class citizens, or that adulterers and homosexuals are put to death. But our own society used to be like that too. The theme of my talk this evening is that how we think and feel about sex nowadays is the result of a huge revolution that began in the 18th century the first sexual revolution, as I've called it in my book. So I want to start by taking you back to the pre-modern world, the world before that first sexual revolution. That's a world in which sex is not private, on the contrary, except within marriage, it was a public 
crime. Let me give you an example of what that meant in practice. It's the story that my book begins with. And it happened exactly 400 years ago. It happened in the winter of 1612. It also happened, also took place, almost exactly where we are now this evening. A man and a woman called Susan Perry and Robert Watson were arrested and brought before the magistrates of Westminster. The crime alleged against them was that they had had sex together without being married. And worse still, they had conceived a bastard child. Susan confesses her guilt. It's quite obvious she's carrying the child. But Robert claims he's innocent, and so they have to be put on trial before a jury of 12 men. It doesn't take long to decide their fate. They're found, both found guilty. And for this terrible crime, the judges order them to be forever expelled from the society in which they live. They are taken straight from the courthouse to the local prison. They're stripped naked from the waist upwards and tied to a cart. And then they are whipped, paraded through the streets of Westminster with their backs dripping with blood in public humiliation all the way through town to the edge of the city to Temple Bar on the Strand, which is just a stone's throw from where we are now. And that's where they're dumped ceremonially, unceremoniously, outside the city. So they're cut off from their friends, their families, their livelihoods forever. Their sentence is that they may never again set foot in their hometown. If they do that, the same punishment will be inflicted on them all over again. This kind of sexual discipline was a completely ordinary occurrence in pre-modern England or Scotland or anywhere else in the Western world before the 18th century. Every day, people were arrested, flogged, fined, imprisoned, publicly humiliated. This was the law of the church and of the state, but it was administered, it was carried out by ordinary people. There was no separate police force. The law depended on communities policing themselves and upholding collective standards. Because it seemed obvious that illicit sex and angered God had to be repressed for that reason. It also prevented the salvation of anyone who engaged in it. And it clearly seemed to undermine social order. So for all these reasons, it had to be rooted out. Now obviously, plenty of men and women did have sex without being married. After all, thousands of them were prosecuted every year. Countless others managed not to get caught. Popular attitudes were also sometimes more tolerant than the official orthodoxy. As the leaders of the Tudor Church complained in 1540, among many, fornication is counted no sin at all, but rather a pastime, a dalliance, and but a touch of youth, 
not rebuked, but winked at, not punished, but laughed at. So sexual discipline was never perfect. It was also, in its execution, clearly biased. Women were more likely to be punished, wealthy and powerful men much less. But all the same, the general trend over the centuries from the Anglo-Saxons right up to 1600 was that sexual discipline was getting more intense, more successful, more powerful. And this had a very tangible effect on people's behavior. They took part in the punishing and disciplining of others. They internalized the idea that sex was wrong and dangerous outside marriage. And they had less and less sex outside marriage. Over the later 16th and early 17th centuries, the numbers of children born out of wedlock steadily diminished. And there was an equally sharp decline in premarital fornication in people having sex before marriage. In fact, over this period, the main pressure for change was always towards greater discipline and greater repression. The most fervent Protestants campaigned to impose the death penalty for adultery and other sexual crimes, as they thought the Bible seemed to command. And wherever such Puritans, such fundamentalist Protestants gained power, they did this in Scotland, in New England, in Geneva, in Bohemia, and in the 1650s in England itself. The last person to be executed for adultery in this country was probably a woman called Susan Bounty from Biddeford in Devon. When she was tried and convicted and sentenced to death, she was pregnant. And so the judges humanely let her live on in prison until she'd given birth. And then they took the baby from her, they paraded her to the public scaffold, and they hanged her until she was dead. That is the world we've left behind. It was transformed forever by the first sexual revolution, which began around 1700, and whose effects still shape the way we think and feel about sex. It's an incredibly large and rich subject, and what I've tried to do in The Origins of Sex is to write a total history of it, one that draws on the whole range of material from the period, one that ranges across society from illiterate peasants to some of the greatest artists and thinkers who've ever lived, and equally one that shows how this revolution in sexual attitudes was part of the transformation of the whole of Western culture at this time. I I focused on England because you can only do so much um, in one book, but also because it's in the vanguard of these developments. Uh, But my instinct is that very similar things are happening across other Western societies at this time. So in the rest of my talk, I'm going to single out five aspects of the sexual revolution, five key features of our modern outlook that were born at this time. And in each case, I'm going to give you one example of a key development that made it possible, something new that happened that caused, helped cause this. 
And I hope that this taster will give you an appetite to read the book itself, um, to find out the full story of how all this fits together. So the first great change was simply the collapse of sexual discipline and a huge surge in illicit sex. We can measure this very crudely but unmistakably by looking at the hard demographic evidence of children conceived out of wedlock. Before the sexual revolution, this figure had been going down, 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 down. By the 1650s, only about 1% of all births in England were illegitimate. But by 1800, almost 40% of brides in England came to the altar pregnant, and about a quarter of all firstborn children were illegitimate. This was to be a permanent sea change in behavior. And the one crucial change that made this possible, one crucial cause I pick out, was the explosion of towns. For centuries, across the West, almost everyone had lived in small, slow, rural communities of a few hundred people at most. That was the kind of social context in which it was easy to enforce social and moral and sexual conformity. Even in 1600, London was the only city in England with perhaps 200,000 inhabitants. That's the size of Milton Keynes today. It's not a huge metropolis. Um, but what happens in the 18th century is an extraordinary explosion of urbanization. By 1850, most British people live in towns. And London itself had exploded into the greatest metropolis on the face of the globe. It's the largest city in the world, uh, a, a city of more than two million people. This created entirely new ways of living, made it impossible to maintain traditional forms of social control. So in many respects, our modern sexual attitudes are urban attitudes. The second uh, key aspect of the sexual revolution was the birth of the idea of sexual freedom. The principle that we now take for granted that sex is private and that consenting adults have the right to do what they want with their own bodies. This was one of the most powerful and revolutionary ideas to come out of the Enlightenment. Even today, we're still grappling with its precise consequences. And the thing that I want to pick out that made it possible in this case uh, were entirely new ways of thinking that emerged at this time about human nature, about God, about the purpose of life on earth. The older way of thinking, which had supported sexual discipline, was essentially fundamentalist. It was based on the belief that there was just one correct way of behaving laid down by God in the Bible. But in the 18th century, there was a great shift towards basing morality on individual reason and personal conscience, rather than on the interpretation of holy scriptures and the guidance of holy men. So instead of uh, morality being uh, a matter of external authority telling you what to do, uh, people start to think that really the rules of right and wrong should come from within, and they should be accessible to people using their reason and their conscience. Uh, now it came to be thought 
that God's ethical rules were surely simple and universal and visible in nature. And so henceforth, sexual ethics were increasingly based on two essentially new distinctions. The first was that between natural and unnatural forms of behavior, and the other was that between the private and the public. As the inventor of the sandwich, the fourth Earl of Sandwich, also a great uh, libertine, uh, put it in the 1760s when arguing for the privacy of his own sex life, people should forgive my weaknesses when they do not interfere with my conduct as a public man. That's a clear statement of the new doctrine. Not everyone agreed in the 1760s. Not everyone would agree today. But this was at the point at which this distinction, this way of thinking, became central to Western thought and to definitions of liberty. The third aspect of the modern outlook that I want to pick out for you was a great transformation of attitudes towards male and female sexuality. So put simply, the modern way of thinking is that of the two sexes, men on the whole are more naturally promiscuous than women. This idea was born in the 18th century. Before that, exactly the opposite had been the conventional view, namely that women were the more lustful sex. That idea had in fact been a complete commonplace of Western culture since biblical times. As um, the writer Richard Burton put it in The Anatomy of Melancholy in 1621, of women's unnatural, insatiable lust, what country, what village doth not complain? And the explanation for this commonplace was very simple. It was that lust was one of the human passions. It's part of the corrupt nature of all human beings. And women were simply weaker. They were mentally weaker, bodily weaker, morally weaker. And so they were less able to control their passions, less capable of self-discipline, and hence more naturally lustful. Yet if you look um, at the situation around 1800, by the later 18th century, exactly the opposite view had come to be strongly entrenched. Now, women had come to be seen as comparatively innocent, as more chaste, as more sexually passive. And now, men were regarded as much more naturally and irrepressibly libidinous and liable to seduce women, to be after them all the time. We can see this new presumption, this new obsession with male seduction um, as central in uh, the, great, the first great novels of the English language, from Richardson and Fielding all the way through to Jane Austen. And from then on, this notion of women's relative sexual passivity has saturated our culture. It had a huge effect on Victorian prudery, and it was also one of the foundations, in a more positive sense, of modern feminism. It's one of the origins, uh, one of the sources of uh, uh, inspiration for uh, most 19th and 20th century, uh, early 20th century feminists. As Christabel Pankhurst's great slogan uh, had it in 1913, what was needed to make the world a better place was, quote, votes for women and chastity for men. Those are the two things lacking 
in the world that need to be put right. So in all sorts of ways, this sexual double standard was one of the most enduring consequences of the first sexual revolution, and it's one of the central themes of my book. What I want to highlight for you here, just a little snippet, is one of the key causes of this new way of thinking, which also happens to be one of the most overlooked and important social developments of the whole 18th century. And that's the emergence, for the first time, of women's voices into the public sphere. In all earlier times, before the 18th century, women had been essentially excluded from public discussion. It was men who monopolized fiction, drama, poetry, sermons, journalism, education, philosophy, popular writing, moral polemic, you name it. Women had no public voice. They did not publish, except very exceptionally. They did not teach. That was why femininity had tended to be so publicly undervalued. But from the later 17th century, this changed. For the first time in history, at this point, women emerged as a permanent part of the world of letters, as playwrights, as poets, as novelists, as writers of other kinds. Women influenced male authors. They looked to one another. They addressed themselves directly to the public. And so did the first feminist theologians and philosophers, women like Margaret Cavendish, um, Damaris Masham, the great friend of John Locke, um, and Mary Astor, often called the first English feminist. And one of the main subjects for all female writers was love and courtship and the relations between the sexes. And when they described these things, they tended to stress how, from a female perspective, it was actually men who were incessantly lustful, who were always chasing women, who were trying to trick them and force them into having sex. As Mary Astor put it in a famous and very influential passage, it was always women who were being victimized. Tis no matter to men if women who were born to be their slaves be now and then ruined for their entertainment. It were endless to reckon up the diverse stratagems men use to catch their prey. No woman, she concluded, could ever be too much upon her guard. Now, these arguments were themselves not entirely new. We can glimpse them in some medieval critiques of misogyny, for example. But it was only from the later 17th century onwards that they came to be put forward publicly, at length, and in quantity, and continually, in a way that discernibly changed the broader culture of the age. And that brings me to the fourth key aspect of the modern world, modern sexual world, that was created in the 18th century. And that's our culture of sexual celebrity and sexual scandal. It's often presumed that this is a quintessentially contemporary phenomenon. But in fact, it was born in the 18th century. The very first sexual celebrities were the public women of the 18th century, actresses, singers, above all, the great 18th century courtesans. At exactly the same time as it came to be argued that respectable women were essentially asexual, 
there grew up this whole cult of celebrity around immoral women, which they manipulated with extraordinary skill. Everything they did and said appeared and was reported in the newspapers, in pamphlets, in magazines. Their pictures were endlessly reproduced by the thousands in paintings, in engravings, and medallions. Kitty Fisher, Fanny Murray, Nancy Dawson, all the other famous ladies of pleasure of the day inspired puppet shows. Uh, they uh, appeared in plays, in songs, in fashions, uh, even in nursery rhymes. You will all know Lucy Lockett lost her pocket, Kitty Fisher found it. Instead of on his mobile phone, an 18th century man would carry around a tiny picture of his favorite sex symbol on the lid of his snuff box or inside his pocket watch so he could look at it whenever he wanted in perfect privacy. And the word pornography, the very word pornography, which literally means the description of harlots, was coined around this time precisely to, to was invented to describe this new cult of sexual celebrity. So that's the fourth phenomenon. And, and, and what I want to pick out that makes it possible around this time for this uh, entirely new uh, 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 thing to appear is the explosion of cheap print and the birth of an entirely new kind of media culture in the 18th century. This was the point at which the modern mass media came into being, where the newspaper was invented and magazines and all sorts of other ways for people, even very ordinary people, to communicate through much more democratic and uncensored and permanent networks than had ever existed before. And this new mass audience, again, it's essentially an urban phenomenon, but uh, most people are increasingly living in towns. Uh, the new mass audience loves sexual scandal. And all the modern versions of sexual scandal that I can think of were also born in the 18th century. There were endless memoirs, uh, fake memoirs as well as real memoirs, uh, that sought to capitalize on notorious affairs. There were lots of fictitious and satirical pictures that poked fun at sexual celebrities. And there was a stream of kiss and tell stories in the papers and in pamphlets that continually threatened to embarrass politicians and other public figures. In 1806, for example, when the Duke of York foolishly discarded his mistress, Mary Ann Clark, without properly um, uh, settling her, uh, she took revenge by immediately setting to work, uh, cashing in on her story. So first, she gets together with lots of hacks to put out uh, scandalous ghost-written pamphlets poking fun at the royal family. Then she threatens to publish details of her affair with the Duke of York and with others. And finally, when that wasn't enough, she actually sits down, writes, and has printed 18,000 copies of a really hot, scandalous memoir, sensationalist, uh, complete with the Duke's love letters and everything. Uh, and that finally persuades the Duke to give in and in return for burning the memoirs, all 18,000 copies, um, she accepts a huge payoff. I mean, more than a million pounds in today's money. Uh, that's just the lump sum, and then a lifelong pension for her and her daughter. So I, I have to say, nothing I read about uh, online today uh, surprises me 
very much. Um, that's what you get with a free, unregulated press. Um, but this obsession with sexual scandal and the ways in which it's manipulated uh, is not some recent aberration. It's right there at the birth of the modern mass media. It's intrinsic to the com combination of commercial print and sexual freedom. So that's my fourth um, characteristic of modern sexual attitudes. So what's my last one? Well, the fifth and final feature of the modern sexual world that was created in the 18th century was confusion. Or to put it a different way, plurality. Because sexual freedom is not static. It's constantly evolving. And in the last part of my book, I take the story of the sexual revolution forward, right up to the present day. So I want to end this talk by saying a bit about how Victorian and 20th century attitudes were shaped by that first sexual revolution, what its limits were, what its injustices, but also its enduring legacies. If we go back to the world before the sexual revolution, sexual ethics were quite simple. God was against all sex outside marriage, so the main thing that needed defining was what was a valid marriage. Once you define that, everything else is to be punished because it's sinful and it's dangerous to social order. That's a very coherent, very straightforward, very strong, unified worldview. What the sexual revolution did was to shatter this coherence, to shatter this old fundamentalist outlook. It didn't destroy it altogether, but the modern ways of thinking that were born in the 18th century were intrinsically plural. They're intrinsically open to reinterpretation. And that's because they're based on ideas that are very powerful, but impossible to pin down. What is sexually natural or unnatural? What is private behavior? And when does it spill over into the public? What kinds of behavior are harmful? And who should determine this? How far should people be allowed to do what they like with their own bodies? It was in the 18th century that these all became, for the first time, questions of major public importance. And we've been grappling with them ever since. Over the past 200 years, sexual attitudes have evolved in two contrasting ways, both of which come out of this great earthquake that I've been describing. On the one hand, the Victorians sought to repress and restrict sexual liberty in all sorts of ways. That's partly a conservative and anti-enlightenment backlash against the supposed excesses of the 18th century. But it also reflects the limits and biases of sexual freedom itself. In practice, it was mainly white, upper-class, heterosexual men who celebrated their own freedoms as natural and harmless and so on. The sexuality of women, of the lower classes, of other races, and of homosexuals, all these were not natural or harmless or private in the same way, but dangerous and undesirable. And so these came to be stigmatized and policed in all sorts of ways throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. 
the repression of female sexuality and of homosexuality as unnatural therefore comes directly out of the revolutionary new ways of thinking that were born in the Enlightenment. They're the flip side, if you like, the dark side of sexual freedom. And yet, the idea of sexual freedom and the new ways of behaving and living that were born in the 18th century was so powerful and, in principle, universal that already by 1800, we can find people defending the rights of women and of homosexuals as harmless and natural and private. And there are lots of wonderful examples of that in my book. Um, there's, for example, James Boswell's teenage lover, Jean Hume, who argued to him and to other men for the harmlessness of adultery as she slept with a series of lovers. There's Jeremy Bentham, the greatest thinker of the 18th century, who wrote hundreds and hundreds of pages in defense of love and sex between men. And then there are the countless examples of people otherwise completely unnoticed by history, like William Brown, a married man who one night in London in 1726 went out cruising for gay sex. He found it. But then, with his hand in another man's trousers, he found himself suddenly surrounded by hostile watchmen shining torches in his face, arresting him and demanding what he was doing. And he was not ashamed to answer, so goes the police report, he was not ashamed to answer, I did it because I thought I knew him, and I think there is no crime in making what use I please of my own body. That is our modern conception of sexual freedom in a nutshell, and it shows how potentially far-reaching it was right from the moment of its creation. So the other important theme in 19th and 20th century attitudes has been the gradual expansion of sexual freedom in theory and practice. Sexual freedom for men continued to advance very strongly under the Victorians. As we're all celebrating Charles Dickens today, let me just remind you of what he said about his children. He said if any son of his uh, was chaste and not promiscuous, he'd be worried that there was something wrong and, and, and that the lad was, was ill or something. Um, so uh, Dickens is an excellent example of a Victorian man we can also uh, trace the acceleration uh, especially from the 1920s onwards of sexual liberty for women and the slow advance of homosexual rights through the 19th and 20th centuries so the events of the 1960s and of the past 50 years should not be seen as a sharp break from the past but has the acceleration of those ongoing trends and their increasing expansion into mainstream culture. Indeed, I think the great paradox of our present time is that nowadays sex is both more private and more public than ever before. As a culture, we increasingly assert the essential privateness of sexual relations as far as the public realm of the state and the law are concerned. And yet, simultaneously, we seem to have a growing desire to expose, I say we as a culture, not all of us, uh, to expose the most intimate details of our lives to the broadest possible public gaze. And I think this is a very different balance, obviously, between the private and the public than the Victorian one, even than the one of the 1950s. 
But the main point is that this essential tension, the shifting balance between the two, uh, goes right back to the first sexual revolution and the invention of the public and the private. So those are my five key aspects of that first sexual revolution, of its consequences and its significance. I think this was the point at which our sexual culture moved on to a completely new and unprecedented trajectory. And by contrast, even today, in other parts of the world, men and women remain at risk of public prosecution for having sex outside marriage, imprisonment, flogging, even execution continue to be imposed on men and women. Extra-legal persecution is even more widespread than that. These are exactly the same practices that sustained Western culture for most of its history. Our modern ways of thinking and behaving are quite different, they're quite recent, and they're quite precious. And I've tried to show where they come from and why we should appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to Dr. Dabwewela. And now we will open the floor to questions. I hope you have some questions. And we have a roving mic, at least one. So if you could please wait, there are two. So if you could raise your hand, and then um, our stewards will spot you and swiftly bring you a mic. Um, so perhaps we could start in the front here. And if you have other questions, perhaps signal that you do so that a steward can find you in the meantime. I, um, I was interested to hear you describe um, this emergence of women as sexually passive as sort of an inspiration for feminist movements, whereas things that you talk about, such as the Madonna Hall sort of um, complex that you talked about later, seem to me to be quite, um, you know, a, an obstacle that feminist movement seeks to overcome. So I was interested that you, you came at it from angle than I would have expected. I think that the, the point I was, uh, thank you, so the, qu the question is about um, the uh, origins of uh, uh, feminist ideas and, and sexuality in those. And I, I think the point I was, main point I was trying to get across is that um, from the 18th century onwards, um, uh, from Mary Astle through to Mary Wollstonecraft, all the great feminists of the 19th century, uh, derive uh, strength from their belief that women are morally superior to men. And the epitome of that is that they are more chaste, that they can control their passions, that they don't uh, go around like men, behaving like animals. That's, that's, the, that's it in a nutshell. Jill, at the back, and then we'll take this one in the middle. Um, so I guess my question has to do with, again, the feminist perspective. Um, so I guess I can frame this in an articulate way. Um, I guess I'm wondering a little bit more about the power structures, because I've noticed you didn't mention at all the male and female power structure, or how that related at all to the feminist movement and the, the sexual revolution. Um, and I know that's something, you know, Foucault talks quite a bit about. There's quite a bit of, you know, that's quite a large part of his body of work. And I'm wondering if you have any comments there. Um, I, I, try, I tried, tried to keep it simple. 
Um, but uh, as I said in the talk, a major theme of the book is the uh, disparate, unequal effects of these new ways of thinking and behaving on men and on women. And the old system of sexual discipline, um, in, in, in principle, is uh, more equal because anyone who has sex outside marriage, in theory, is punishable. The execution of that, the implementation of that, is biased in the same way that all other power structures are in pre-modern society. It punishes women more harshly than men, but even men are quite severely punished. Um, the, uh, by contrast, uh, the sexual revolution, the new sexual freedom of the 18th century, is essentially, mainly, freedom for men. Uh, and it goes along with this new way of thinking about uh, men's uh, sexuality being natural and it being normal for them to be promiscuous and unnatural for women. So it sharpens up tremendously the sexual double standard. And the consequences for that are really very, um, uh, very great. Uh, and, and I try to show uh, in the course of the book all the ways in which this affects uh, art and literature, social policy, uh, politics, uh, you name it. There is a question in the middle. Oh, hello, not being a historic historian or, or an academic, I've always thought this had got an awful lot to do with babies, and you did mention them once or twice, uh, but whether you end up having a baby or not having a baby has huge impacts, and of course the historical change in that is quite recent, and the number of babies you had, and the whatever wherewithal you had with which to help them survive and bring them up. Do, do you comment much on that in your, in your book? Because yes. it's a great big theme. Absolutely. I mean, it's quite horrific what happens to you in pre-modern society if you're a woman who becomes pregnant without being married. Um, you know, people are not even allowed to assist you uh, as you are in labor if you don't give up the name of the father so that a prosecution can follow or so that some you know, legal intervention can happen. So it's, 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 it's horrendous. Um, and I also show in the book uh, how this uh, idea that m women are more lustful, which is so powerful in Western culture until the 18th century, is continually uh, undermined if we look at the records themselves uh, of uh, daily life and uh, male uh, harassment uh, and worse of women. Um, and so there's no doubt that, that pregnancy is absolutely the number one thing on people's minds. Um, but it is also, in the, in, the, in the culture of sexual discipline, an obvious reason, an obvious uh, intellectual reason, but also practical reason, why you would not do this, because it's so dangerous. Um, and that continues to be the case, uh, uh, really, through uh, the 19th century as well. I think that, that, that if, if there's one, if there are two things that... Well, I mean, the 1960s sexual revolution, clearly uh, the most practically important change there is the mass availability of contraception to women for the first time. I think, I think I'd absolutely agree with you on that. So there was one in the second row, honey. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, and we'll have a couple at the front after that. You pointed out that the pre-revolutionary attitudes were to some extent global. I mean, from Geneva to Puritan American. Um, to what extent is this uh, revolutionary period a homegrown, very UK-based, English-based, London-based phenomenon, 
Okay, would you care to uh, expand on the larger context? In particular, I'd like to be, uh, I'd be interested in the, um, the effect of the colonial encounter, the imperial expansion that seems to roughly started or coincide with this period of revolutionary change. Yes. Um, well, your, more, your more general question first about, I mean, I'm dying for other people to work on other Western cultures and, and look at this in the way that I have. Um, so we simply don't know about the detail, but the outline seems to me very strikingly similar. In all Western cultures, you have the same uh, social uh, developments in terms of urbanization. You have the same uh, kinds of developments in terms of uh, people having more sex outside marriage, the breakdown of uh, church and uh, state regulation, and the same ideas about sexual freedom and the same double standards uh, with relation to men and women. Uh, and just quickly on your second point, um, the work that has been done on colonial America suggests that uh, in the cities of, of North America, uh, you get uh, very strongly uh, s uh, parallels to what I'm describing. Of course, those are very strongly influenced by what's happening in, in London. Uh, London is not just a place where all this happens. It's also the most important, uh, um, it's really the center of the universe for the British Empire and for uh, social policy and attitudes and things like that, which then get exported across the globe. So there are three questions, Hanukkah, and then in the first row, and then Emily. Your talk. Um, I was wondering, could you speak of um, the Victorian era and Victorian sexual morale as a backlash against the first sexual revolution? I suppose you would call the 60s, 70s the, sexual, the second sexual revolution. Do you, um, and I know I shouldn't ask this of a historian, do you believe currently we are still in a sexual free, sexual revolution kind of historical phase, or do you believe currently with obscenity laws and um, sex education uh, being taken out of schools, we might be in a backlash against that? I, I, I think um, what I've tried to show in the book is that over the past 200 years, and indeed over the past 50 years, uh, the boundaries between the public and the private, what is uh, socially acceptable and what is not, have been constantly shifting and not in one particular direction, back and forth. I started working on this uh, in the late 1980s when uh, homosexuality was made, was, well, was illegal in various respects in the United Kingdom and in the United States. And there were Supreme Court judgments and parliamentary statutes uh, enshrining that. Uh, that itself uh, was uh, something of a reversal uh, uh, in, in legislative terms. So I think um, my, my overall point is not that we're moving in one direction or another, but that the ways in which we grapple with these problems are um, based on ways of thinking and living that were established in this great revolution. And they're also intrinsically unstable. We're never going to agree as a society on what exactly is the boundary between the private and the public. That's part of what is created uh, in uh, the Enlightenment. There was one here in the front. And there. Um, my question would be, 
Obviously, you mentioned that currently, even though we are sort of past after the first and maybe the second revolution, we are sort of in one place, but then there are countries and places in the world, not maybe in the Western world, where there are similar structures in place as they were before that revolution. Um, and then you mentioned these five sort of main factors and how they all come together to, to, make, us be, uh, to make us be able to have this revolution. Do you think... It's just factors such as these, and when similar things happen elsewhere, there would be a similar revolution, say, in Eastern countries. Or do you think there's something in our Western mentality or, you know, psychological makeup that made us have that revolution and maybe other places, different people, would never ever have it, simply because despite having cheap print and urbanization, all those factors still being in place? That's a, that's a fascinating question. I, I really have to, going to have to think about it for months. Um, but I think my short answer would be no. Uh, it's not that uh, uh, Western human beings have something different in their psyche. In fact, I was trying to show you that until quite recently, we behaved as a culture in very similar ways. Um, so it's simply not uh, historically plausible that that could be part of the explanation. But I'll keep thinking about it. Um, yeah, I, I wonder if perhaps I'm just a little confused. Um, but you, you talked about sort of uh, the discourse of, of punishment around sex in you know early Reformation puritanical times, and I wonder, um, I wonder if, if that's the whole of it, because you always think about the Elizabethan period or like you know all the sex jokes in Shakespeare that there was this very public discourse about sex that was not necessarily you know, punishment-based, and how does that fit into your whole sort of framework? Yes. Well, I mean, first of all, people do joke about um, love and sex uh, before the 18th century, uh, but, but actually mainly they're joking about love and courtship uh, and explicit arguments for sexual freedom, that people should be allowed to do what they like, are actually impossible to find publicly when you find them privately, they're very bitty. It's mainly when people are caught in bed with someone else that they say, oh, hang on, there's nothing harmless. There's nothing harmful about this. Uh, just let me go. So um, it's just not a serious way of thinking. And, and um, so it's, it, it, people talk facetiously about love. They talk about uh, young people especially, you know, before they're mature, making mistakes and so on. And that's, that's not as terrible as having adultery once you're married. Um, but you mentioned Shakespeare. I mean, I, it's a while since I read it, but Measure for Measure, I think 1604, what is that about? That is about the prospect of imposing the death penalty for adultery. And that is about that because that is a very live debate in England in 1604. <laughs> I, I, I... <laughs> yes. There's a question at the back. Sorry. Hello? I'm wondering what the attitude of everybody else is regarding female form and nude female form. I find the early Victorian work far more appealing than the modern stuff. It seems that as the law becomes relaxed, it actually seems to lose its value. I, I'm sorry, I missed the first part of your question. Could you I'm thinking of the attitudes to, 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 to glamour photography for women, of women. I find the early Victorian work, when the laws are far more strict, is far more appealing than the, the later work. Well, as the laws got more relaxed, the images actually get less and less appealing. 
I'm very impressed by the early work of, of Mybridge in 18, 1884, who did the analysis of the human figure in motion. Most of the ladies who pose naked, do all sorts of antics, were actually ladies of high society who actually volunteered to pose for him. I wonder what your views are. <laughs> I'm really grateful. I shall, I shall have to go away and, and look at them, obviously. Thank you. I think there was a question over there next to that gentleman. Yes? <laughs> um, you, no, you do have to speak into the mic so that the, um, oh. the recording can get up. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, I guess I guess to be quite frank, I find this whole thing very male-centered. And I find that um, you know, a big part of the sexual revolution has to do with women trying to overcome you know, oppression and, and sort of the place that men, you know, in society that they have been sort of placed in. So um, I, I guess I'm wondering, and you've spoken a lot about more in the book, um, which is for sale in the hallway, I guess I'm wondering what else you could mention to Thank maybe you for that plug. <laughs> give a little more insight into, um, you know, because to me this is very, this is very, um, I articulate this. Um, I know I'm being recorded, so I want to be very, <laughs> very correct. But um, I guess I, I guess I'm a little uncomfortable with the discourse, and I'm wondering, you know, do you go into more of the female perspective, which is a giant part of the sexual revolution? Is there more depth in that area? Yes, 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 yes. Could, could you elaborate a little more on that of what we could find? <laughs> I think I think uh, more seriously um, and more academically, just for a moment, if you'll forgive me. Um, uh, one of the key differences between uh, current uh, feminist perspectives and um, uh, those of the 18th century is a degree of self-consciousness um, about uh, repression and the forms that it takes. Um, so if you look at before the 18th century, um, who is doing the disciplining of women Let's just take women for for that. It's mainly or, or very largely uh, other women who internalize uh, the ideas about sex being dangerous and bad outside marriage. The same goes for the 18th and 19th centuries. I mean, it is women policing other women. This is the, you know, I don't, don't need to tell you how patriarchy works, but that is very strongly uh, a feature of how these uh, new ideas get taken up and embedded and are so difficult to overcome. Uh, so even Mary Wollstonecraft uh, takes it absolutely for granted and, and spells out many times that of course uh, women are naturally more chaste than men. Uh, she doesn't uh, think to um, uh, deny that principle even if she is able to behave in ways which I talk about a great deal uh, in chapter three. Um, <laughs> that events a new kind of feminist consciousness about sexuality. I hope that so you really will have to read it to, to find out everything. There's one at the back. Hello. Um, I'd like to ask if you are coming to the same conclusion or similar conclusion as Michel Foucault's History of Sexuality uh, regarding the 20th and century, that although we are speaking about the sex and sexuality more, then we are still um, dropping our pri um, privacy and freedom more. 
and that the discourse of state regulation diminish our rights more nowadays? Um, I think I wouldn't go that far. Um, but I would absolutely agree uh, with his uh, central insight, which I think uh, everyone who started looking at the history of sexuality in the 1970s immediately saw, even if they didn't then go on to explain it, which is that the 18th century is a moment of tremendous, unprecedented change. It's the watershed, really. Um, and uh, that insight, which Foucault never went on to uh, um, develop historically because you know he did other things uh, which were great and, and he wasn't a historian but uh, that's one of the things that I've tried now finally to explain and put together properly um, a completely different question now um, my question would be do you think that maybe uh, if before the sexual revolution it was very much a male-dominated world where may, men were more chaste and f women were the promiscuous. Um, that, that, and, that, that was the idea. Yeah, that was the idea. And then after the revolution, it turned very much around, and now women are seen as the chaste and men as the pursuers. Do you think that maybe because it was such a revolution and it had been like that for so long, it sort of went too far, and instead of coming to a balance where both men and women are you know, sexual beings, it went sort of to, the, to the other side of the equation. And maybe that's why the second revolution was necessary, and maybe it's still ongoing, that we are still trying to come to some sort of a balanced agreement on what it actually is like, and we're still just as misguided, just in a different way. Yes. Uh, hello. I was um, interested in your concept of pre-modern morality because from your description it sounded like you, what you were actually describing was more of a sort of Protestant fundamentalism, specifically one. Do, do you think that um, the sort of really harsh fundamentalist regulation that you described from around the 16th, 17th century may have been less some sort of direct link from an ongoing tradition as a as opposed to, say, a Protestant revitalization or obsession with it? And do you think that survives today? Because it, that sort of pre-modern ethic, uh, fundamentalist Protestant ethic, certainly survives in my North American homeland, which shall remain nameless. <laughs> um, up to a point. I mean, the, Re the Reformation uh, is a, a moment of tremendous hardening of attitudes because Protestants... Uh, uh, take the view that the Catholic Church is impossibly, horribly lax uh, and uh, uh, sexual morality is central and the tightening up of sexual discipline is central to Reformation. Um, and the harshest measures in practice are implemented by zealous Protestant Puritans, including in New England, um, which I talk about um, uh, in the book. But... Uh, but on the other hand, the Catholics respond to this challenge in the 16th century and also tighten up uh, sexual morality quite a lot. There's even a Pope, Sixtus V, who in the late 16th century makes adultery punishable by death in Rome for a while. So it's, it's not uh, simply uh, Protestantism. Why do you think Germaine Greer dislikes you so much? <laughs> <laughs> I... I uh, 
Well, three things. I mean, first of all, I admire Jermaine Greer very much, and I've uh, always thought her, long thought her, a fantastic polemicist. Um, secondly, uh, she reviewed my book, and I, I hope people who haven't read that review will not now go and re read it. But uh, <laughs> uh, I really wish that she'd, she'd bothered to read the book. I mean, I thought it's a bit, a bit of a scandal that she reviewed the book without evidently not having properly read it. Um, uh, and I read it very quickly, and I haven't read it again. But I remember that she continually accused me of having overlooked things that are actually central to the book. For example, she says, this man doesn't understand that religious ideas are very important. Well, you can say lots of things about my book, but you can't say that it doesn't centrally talk about uh, the religious basis for sexual discipline and the way in which that, uh, in the 18th century, is transformed into the religious, the theological basis for sexual freedom. So uh, I'm very sorry. I wish she had read it, because I think she would have learned a lot about... Uh, what makes it possible for Germaine Greer to exist and why she has some of the attitudes that she has uh, evinced so beautifully uh, over the last 40 years. Um, there was a, a question here, and then... Uh, well, perhaps we'll take yours first, because you have the mic, and then to this uh, second row. Um, when I think of sexual liberalism in, in history, I think of Roman orgies, Alexander the Great, the Kama Sutra, how well were these uh, pre-Christian cultures understood in 16th and 17th century England, and, and how were they regarded? Yes, that's a wonderful question. Thank you. Um, uh, and the answer is quite simple. They, they, are, they are known about throughout this period. Uh, in, uh, before the sexual revolution, they are pointed to as horrible examples of the kinds of decadence and immorality that reign and destroy cultures uh, if they don't uh, follow the strict and narrow and Christian way uh, of life. Uh, so they're, they're shown as examples of, of what to avoid. And uh, from the 18th century onwards, uh, people look back uh, at exactly the same examples uh, in the past and across the globe and say, look, uh, it seems to be natural for people to behave in all sorts of different ways than strict monogamy and chastity. Uh, surely uh, that's God's way of telling us that there are more than one, uh, that there's more than one way of, uh, 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 of uh, reaching sexual uh, enlightenment. So it's a, it's a very good measure of changing attitudes. Hi. Over here. Oh. Hello. Hello. Um, I'm just going to um, come from sort of bef before before the sexual revolution. Um, my kind of pop anthropology uh, understanding is that before sort of farming societies, societies were a lot more sort of liberal or less sort of uh, controlling. Uh, the, from the, tra the transition from foraging to farming is when society became a lot more uh, sort of controlling sexually. Uh, I'm just wondering whether you see the sort of sexual revolution you discuss as a kind of return to those sorts of morals or a transition forward. Uh, so you're, you're talking really about prehistory? Pre prehistory, yeah. Prehistory, okay. Well, I, yeah, I all think, the way back. I, I, I think um, that uh, uh, there is no comparison between prehistoric society and modern urban uh, commercial society as it uh, emerges from the 18th century onwards. But um, I, I think the first bit of your question I, I, I'd agree with, uh, which is that um, 
what you see over the course of the, the Middle Ages is an increasing attempt by the state and by the church to control and impose uh, morality on uh, people, uh, sexual morality above all. And that, and that, but, the, but the point about that is that it is continually growing and growing and growing in strength and indoctrinating people in ways that they then start to take for granted. I wonder how you reconcile your emphasis on the importance of cities with the fact that the growth in illegitimacy in the 18th century was much more marked in rural communities than in towns. I, well, I, I, that's a very good question. Thank you. Um, I, I picked out the growth of cities partly because it ties in with some of the other uh, things I was talking about, in particular uh, the media revolution and the changes in communication and so on. But uh, the basic point that I was trying to get across right at the start is about the collapse of public discipline. It's about the collapse of, of uh, church courts and public courts. Uh, and that's uh, really um, uh, what makes possible uh, sexual freedom and for people to have sex outside marriage uh, without being punished. So, and that, and that, that is a nationwide phenomenon, as you, as you know. Thank you. Your answer to this question may well be just read the book, but um, I was wondering if you do touch upon uh, the effect of sci scientific understandings of the body and changes in uh, perceptions of, how, first of all, how the body works and the relationship between the physical body and, and psychological or moral makeup of the mind, and uh, what your view on that is, if you did touch upon it, which I yeah, yes. hope you did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that, that's been, for the last 10 or 20 years, a very fashionable way of, of looking at the history of sexuality. Um, but the, the problem with uh, taking it as uh, the cause of changes, that's, so, so, so what happens um, is that by the end of the 18th century, people think differently about how men and male and female bodies are structured, or at least if you look at medical texts, they're talking about bodies in a slightly different way, about men and women as being more essentially different uh, from one another physically. Um, and that's a well-established fact, but, but um, uh, historians have often taken that to be the cause of the much wider cultural changes that I've been trying to describe. And that just doesn't work. It doesn't work for a start chronologically because we can see these changes in medical discourse appearing at, towards the end, the middle and the end of the 18th century. But we already know that these changes in the wider culture uh, are starting to happen uh, well before that. And uh, so in my book, I show that we can see these changing ideas emerge. Uh, the other problem with it is that uh, you, you see, medical texts are not read by very many people apart from a few doctors. Um, but what I show in the book is that we can see very similar ideas much earlier in much more mainstream kinds of publication in popular culture. Um, and that the way that people are starting to think about the differences between men and women doesn't come out of new ideas about the body. New ideas about the body are a consequence of people in general starting to think differently about uh, what's natural and what's unnatural. Do we have more questions for... Yes, please. Know about the process of writing it, how long you said you started thinking about it in the 80s, but <laughs> did you have a lot of sabbaticals? A or slight exaggeration. Hence, um, there's a huge amount of research there, clearly. 
there was a huge amount of research. Was, I had one year of sabbatical quite recently where I finally had time to sit down and, and think about it properly and put it all together. And that was a fantastically exciting year. Uh, and I essentially wrote the book uh, in that year. But it had been a long process of thinking and research uh, before that. I put, a, I put a note above my desk when I was writing uh, that said, uh, life is short and people are busy. And that was a, a note to myself to make it snappy and fun. <laughs> and also that I had to finish it that year. So I hope it's snappy and fun. I did finish it. Sorry? Uh, well, I, I think uh, about a year ago exactly. And, and my publishers, who are tremendous, have, have turned it around. And it's hot off the press now. There is another question at the back. Sorry, I'll be selfish and ask you one more question. Um, is it possible that the sexual revolution may have also been tied to the commercial revolution that was occurring in the 17th and 18th centuries, the growing amount of wealth available to private actors uh, versus the declining amount of wealth uh, available to the church, kind of that shift in power um, that was creating uh, as living standards increased? Uh, elites and secular society had access to more per personal and private wealth? Um, I think the, the clearest way that you'd see that uh, perhaps is in the way in which in the 18th century pleasure um, becomes for the first time really valued in its own right as, as one of the chief ends of life. I mean many people say in the 18th century for the first time the purpose of life is really to enjoy it. It's not to look beyond at the afterlife or to do what God wants and so on. It's just to enjoy yourself. Uh, and I think uh, very likely uh, that attitude is easier to develop and to live if you have more disposable income. Uh, as you say, it is a period of rising wealth and, and living standards. Yes, please, behind the pillar here. Um, hello. Actually, a short question and a comment. Um, in your presentation, I got such a taste like um, there is a very homogeneous Western culture in the sense that Western culture had this uh, sexual revolution. But we see, for instance, Ireland. In Ireland, there are still laws violating the uh, right to abortion on women. There are still some legal laws disciplinizing the women's body because discipline is all about to discipline your body now in the world, in the Western world or in the Eastern world. Or in the USA, like the Western culture, we can see it in the elections that uh, right to marriages or uh, abortion. So, so they are like two poles, even in the Western culture. So how do you define Western culture? What does Western culture mean? Um, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I tried to talk in the last part of the book about those contradictions. Um, as, as I said before, I, I'm not trying to, I don't claim to have written a, a book about the whole of Western culture, but I do think what happens in Britain epitomizes changes that take place elsewhere, and they take place in different societies at different rates, and they take place in, have taken place in our own society, as I said in answer to an earlier question, uh, in ways that go back and forth uh, in uh, interesting ways. And I absolutely agree with you that, that Ireland and the continued power of religious and Christian ideals there and in the fundamentalist thinking uh, in uh, America, in American politics, are examples of the ways in which uh, the, the things I talk about in the book are still live today. But we really can't understand where they come from 
unless we look back at the first sexual revolution. There, is, um, there are two more questions on this side. I see some people have to leave, so maybe you could quickly do that, and then I'll take the last maybe set of questions so that we can minimize the disturbance to um, the speakers. So I'll hold on just for a second, please. So there are one, two, three questions. Does anybody else have a question they would like to ask Dr. Dabuola? Sorry, just to give you a, a, mo a moment here so that we don't have that. Okay, so um, there were two questions over here. One, and sorry, where was the other question? Two, you have the mic already, and then one in the middle, and then one final one on this side. Okay, great. I'm just wondering if you discuss the kind of implications for contemporary societies which we consider to be sexually illiberal, and because you're talking about kind of material and cultural reasons why we became more sexually liberal, and do you talk about why that hasn't happened in other countries, kind of like was asked earlier? I, I don't talk in detail about why it hasn't happened in other cultures, but I do draw the parallel, and I'm very, um, I'm very flattered that uh, uh, people seem to be reading uh, my book uh, in other parts of the world and, and talking to each other on, on Twitter and on Facebook and in places like that about the implications for you know, life in... Uh, Pakistan today, or life in Saudi Arabia, uh, or life uh, uh, in North Africa. So I, I do think that the parallels are very striking, and I'm really gratified that people who are living through these things in their own societies find them illuminating. More of um, to ask a question in the sense of if you've touched on it in your book, but um, I don't know if it was on television I saw recently, but in the sort of like 18th century and before that as well. Um, it was that poor people couldn't even afford to get married. And it's so um, ironic that in, a, in our society today when most people can reasonably afford to get married, that it's something that's not as valued anyway. And I just wondered if you touched on that more in a moral sense as well. Yeah, that's a very, very nice point. Thank you. And I really, yes, I do, I do talk about that. In the, in the 17th century, people uh, were prohibited from marrying very often. Uh, precisely because the community didn't want them to have sex and ha create children that then would have to be looked after uh, uh, financially uh, by, by other people. So, so you're absolutely right to, to draw out that contrast. They, they often, they, 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 yes, poor people were often prevented from, from marrying. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't their decision whether they could afford it or not. Hello. I wonder whether in collective uh, imagery there is um, an universal relationship between sex and love, whereby all the love stories that we, we have learned uh, and uh, poetry um, um, are all outside the marriage. Uh, there, isn't, uh, there aren't love stories uh, within marriage. Uh, and it strikes me that, uh, um, according to your investigation, in fact, marriage only, uh, sorry, sex only belonged to marriage. And both before and after uh, the, the, the sexual revolution. Love was um, outside marriage. 
Can you think of a, a, a love story within marriage? Um, <laughs> do you mean from the culture of the period? <laughs> I've got my mind yes. Today. Yes. Uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, in the 18th century, uh, people uh, start to become more and more interested in the ideal of romantic love in marriage and romantic love as a basis for marriage. And so many of the uh, fictions of the period have at their heart uh, the ideal of a, of a, of a romantic love. I mean, I'm thinking of um, the novels of uh, Samuel Richardson, his, his novel Pamela, uh, and the sequel to that, uh, and some of the work by Fielding as well. And of course, in Jane Austen, there are many um, happily married uh, loving couples. So we don't always see them at the center of the story, but I think the ideal is certainly quite powerful. I haven't read those stories that you have, well, books that you've just mentioned. However, um, does the plot take place before or after marriage? Um, both. <laughs> both. Both, I'm afraid. <laughs> And then we do have one final question, please. Thank you. I, I remain puzzled by the, um, the Victorian period. The fact, as you mentioned, uh, the print media, media culture, urbanization, uh, I guess if anything, they were even more strong forces. I mean, London has got to be much larger. The, the media culture has to be far more prevalent, literacy, et cetera. So I'm, I'm still puzzled by, I guess, maybe I'm wrong, but the uh, traditional view that the Victorian period is a, is a relapse, is a backlash of sexual freedom and liberation for women. So I'm, I'm puzzled by uh, how all these factors, if anything, are uh, even stronger and more forceful in the Victorian era, and yet presumably we uh, perhaps had less freedom. Or maybe I'm wrong. I, I'm, I'm not sure I understand your question correctly, but, but if you're saying how is it that uh, Victorians, um, well, were the Victorians more repressive? As, the Victorian period, if the factors you mentioned were all, if anything, stronger I think as I, as I tried to show in the, in the, at the end of the book, the Victorians uh, in ways are trying to um, uh, sharpen up sexual policing um, in, in part that comes out of the idea of sexual freedom being limited to what is natural and what is um, private. And that what's so striking about the Victorians is that they have these very strong uh, sexual double standards and also social double standards, something I've not talked about in my talk. But uh, what you see uh, is a great differentiation by class of what is permitted and what is not permitted. Uh, and it's those contradictions and double standards that are uh, at the root of the tension between Victorian freedom and Victorian repression. I lied. There is one more question. It's very quick, and it kind of touches on what you've just said. But one of the things I was thinking about was really from the late 17th century and throughout the 18th century, when you have this idea of the aristocratic rake and the libertine, emerging and the idea yes. of the prostitute. Yes. You also have a very strong idea that that kind of sexual behavior, far from being celebrated, is often associated with real cruelty and viciousness. And I wondered whether you saw that as a sort of throwback to this earlier moment of sexual repression, or whether it 
possibly is other men in the culture, given that women don't have that much power, disapproving of that, or whether perhaps that does come from a kind of feminist impulse. But it's definitely, there's definitely a kind of critical reaction to that freedom, isn't there? And, and not just from Mary Astor and, 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 and feminism. It's a very strong kind of literary figure of yes. this vicious, licentious man. Absolutely. And I, 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 I absolutely uh, talk about that a great deal. Um, uh, so, so partly, uh, the, 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 I'll answer very quickly, uh, yes, there is this stereotype. Um, secondly, um, it is uh, uh, based partly on reality. Um, and, and thirdly, um, people start off decrying libertines in the late 17th century as men who essentially have lost control of their passions. They're very um, clear that this is you know, individual weakness. Um, but what's so striking uh, is that by the middle of the 18th century, uh, people uh, take for granted that that's just how upper-class men behave. They can't help it. And from that follows a, a completely different way of dealing with this as a social problem, not as a personal individual weakness. In the Pamela, of course, Mr. Yes. B is civilized, isn't exactly. he, by yes. Pamela? Yes, and that so. was partly, partly where the idea of women as a civilizing influence, as a chaste moral um, uh, means of uh, taming men comes from and derives so much of its force. Well, I hope you will uh, join me in thanking Dr. Dabwebela for...